Despite years of warnings about the threat to tuna, several species are already overfished, and yet the number and size of boats chasing the valuable fish is on the increase. At the same time, Pacific Island nations are still struggling to get a real share of the value from the region's tuna industry, estimated to be worth more than $7 billion a year. Insight reports from Fiji on what can be done. At this roadside market on the outskirts of Suva, bundles of sleek, shiny fish are tied together and piled up on a stainless steel bench, but they're dwarfed by the specimens that lie beside them. It's kawakawa. What is it? Kawakawa. Kawakawa? Yeah. And these ones? Salala. Salala. This red cord. That's red cord. One of the stall workers says his family has been fishing for about 20 years. Competing with the evening traffic, he tells me catches aren't what they once were. No, because the weather is a bit bad and a lot of things changing, yeah? day by day things change. Not so many fish? Not so many fish. And that worry over declining fish numbers isn't confined to the domestic market. It's being raised increasingly urgently over some of the region's tuna species. I'm Philip Atolli and this insight looks at the state of the tuna stocks in the Pacific as they come under increasing pressure from an expanding fishing industry and at the calls for island nations to have a greater share of the earnings from this multi-billion dollar endeavour. Frozen albacore tuna slides down a chute from a Taiwanese vessel at a jetty outside Suva in Fiji. This long-line vessel is just one of hundreds scouring the Pacific for this valuable resource. Fleets fishing for the top four commercial tuna species come into the region from countries as diverse as South Korea, Taiwan, China, the United States and Spain. Last year, a record 1.9 million tonnes was scooped up by huge nets known as purseiners in the skipjack tuna fishery alone. But the latest scientific data on the main tuna species being fished for, skipjack, yellowfin and big eye, makes grim reading. The Regional Technical Support Agency, the SPC, reports that big eye stocks are now down below 20% of the original population. An oceans campaigner with Greenpeace New Zealand, Carly Thomas, says those stock levels are causing a great deal of alarm particularly uh, big-eye tuna, which is the most um, overfished of those species. So big-eye tuna is now down to only 16% of its original population, and that's really starting to get into the level of Mediterranean bluefin tuna, which many people think of as a bit of a poster child for overfishing. What about the other two? Uh, does that mean that the yellowfin and the skipjack are fine? Not exactly. So yellowfin is at about 38% and uh, skipjack at 48%. But the threat to the stocks is nothing new. <laughs> Nearly six years ago, I was in Busan in South Korea, visiting local markets as auctioneers sold fish offloaded in the busy port. The city was also playing host to the annual meeting of the Tuna Commission, the regional body with the responsibility of managing the fishery in the western and central Pacific. At that time, this was how the head of the SBC's Oceanic Fisheries Programme, John Hampton, described the possible outcome of fishing pressure. You know, a low population of adults, a declining population of juveniles, and when those things meet, um, the population is, is really in trouble and you can get commercial collapse of the fishery. At the same meeting, the director of the Tuna Commission, Glenn Hurry, talked about how too many boats were chasing the region's tuna. There's just too many fish being taken out of the stock. 
that's been the advice of the scientific committee for the last five years, and it is time that we actually started to take some responsible action to reduce the pressure on Big Eye. But it is difficult because a lot of it is caught in association with persaining for skipjack. Even in 2008, it had already been clear for years that for some stocks, too much fishing was occurring. But the challenge then, and one that still remains, is the balancing of income for both industry and island nations against sustainability and environmental concerns. Fishing companies with varying degrees of commitment to preserving tuna numbers want to remain profitable, and island nations, some with very few other options, such as the small nations of Tuvalu or Tokelau, are heavily reliant on the income from licences. But pressure for action is growing. Fast forward to 2014, and John Hampton says while overfished big-eye tuna is only 6% of the total regional tuna catch, it represents about 12% of the value. Dr Hampton says it's an important species for several Pacific Island nations that have longline fisheries in their waters. And Glenn Hurry, who is soon to stand down from his position at the Tuna Commission, is now warning that fishing on some stocks must stop immediately to allow recovery. But it's not just officials who fear for the future of the fishery. There are also companies and individuals working in the tuna industry who are worried about the potential for further decline in the viability of the resource. One of them is Phil Roberts, the head of the Singapore processing and fishing company Trimarine. This is not an opinion of a scientist, right? Um, but what we see is dramatically increasing effort. We see uh, a huge growth in the amount of uh, FADs, fish aggregation devices that are being used, and all sorts of very modern technology being applied to that. Satellite boys, boys that um, can tell what is underneath the, the FAD, so boats don't have to waste time going to a, an unproductive FAD, they can focus on the productive ones. And that shows up in the catch figures, which are at a record level. We also see increasing quantities of small fish taken in association with those fads. And we wonder how much further this can go and whether or not one day soon the scientific advice will change from everything's fine to, whoa, we've got a problem here, right? And by the time that message comes through, it may be late. It's difficult to do stuff when the red light is already flashing. The skipjack, as you know, is the biggest components of the catch and the most important from a canning point of view but this is my own feeling I don't think we can just keep on expanding the fleet and the efforts and the efficiency of the boats without limits and not expect adverse consequences for the stock But how much is really known about the impact commercial fishing is having on the region? Scientists are reasonably confident about the information they have to base their assessments on, but there have been problems with getting data from vessels operating on the high seas outside the Pacific nation's exclusive economic zones. Boats must register with the Tuna Commission and have an obligation to provide catch information, but Carly Thomas says in some instances it's just not happening. 
most of the Asian fishing nations coming to the region simply aren't reporting their operational data, and particularly for the long-line fleets, and, and especially those that are operating on the high seas. So in some ways there's still a black hole in that data, and this is something that they're required to do under the convention itself. So signing up to fish in the region, they agreed that they'll be handing over this data for the scientists be able to be able to manage the stocks properly, and they're not doing it year after year, and it's really, it's an insult to the region, and it's undermining the management of the stocks that they also depend upon. There has been a significant increase in the number, size and capability of boats working in the fishery. One of the biggest fishing vessels in the world, a Spanish super, super seiner, has been operating in the region. As Trimarine's Phil Roberts points out, the numbers from the support agency, the SPC, say it all. A more modern boat can catch much more per day. You know, the impact on the stock is much greater. And the, the good uh, example of that is if you go to the SPC catch records for the Persane fishery and you look at the total num catch by Persane as in 1975 or 1980 when the fishery was just starting to take off and you divide by the number of Persaners, you'll get X thousand tonnes in a year. If you then take last year's results or the most recent year's results, do the same calculation, you'll find that the catch is almost double. Right? That's a measure of how more efficient boats have become. The owner of Fiji Fish, Graham Southwick, has been in the business for about 50 years and has operated out of his current home base since the late 1970s. He's a firm believer in managed fisheries, but says the idea has never really taken hold in many parts of the Pacific. And there's been excessive licences issued and excessive optimism in fisheries and what they can do for the country, and as a result we've got, we have had massive overfishing. And the change in the local tuna stocks in the last 30 years has been marked. At that time we were, we were setting 50 hooks and catching five or six fish. We now set 3,000 hooks to catch about 10 fish. So the, the percentage had gone down from like 8%, um, which is considered very high, eight, 8 fish for every 100 hooks you set, down to about 0.2 or 0.1 of a fish. And what about the size of those fish? Well, the fish has uh, got much smaller as well. I mean, any, anybody in the industry could see miles ahead. But, you know, we, we, we have a problem. The management that goes on in fisheries, in the Pacific fisheries, is what, what I call rear vision management. You know, they, they're managing by looking at past, at historic catches. And, and I've often said to them, you know, look, what do you see when you look in a rear vision mirror? You see a, a, a little sign that says, this thing is much closer than what you really think, you know. And when you have scientists, and I mean, God bless their soul, they come up with, it, with the right answers and everything, but, but often too late, much too late. And we're looking ahead, we're sitting in the front seat, we're seeing daily catches, what's going on, daily drop-off, we see it, and we can project ahead because we see clearly ahead. of Palau, Tommy Remengesau, put the region's vast ocean and its rich fish resource at the very top of his opening address to leaders at the Pacific Islands Forum in July. We should not listen blindly to our scientists and data collectors. 
When we hear that the data shows that fish stocks are stable, we must be willing to question such data with our own experiences. I am a fisherman. Many of you are like me. We claim to be fishermen. <laughs> but it really doesn't take a fisherman to tell us that fish stocks are dwindling significantly and fish sizes are smaller. But some progress has been made with a group of eight nations that founded the fishing bloc known as the Parties to the Nauru Agreement, or PNA. Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Kiribati, Palau, Marshall Islands, Nauru, Tuvalu and the Federated States of Micronesia control the PNA exclusive economic zones. These waters are home to the huge skipjack fishery where relatively healthy stocks of the fish are caught by purse sane fishing nets for canning. The PNA's headquarters is based in the Marshall Islands and its head, Transform Angarau, says the whole reason behind its existence is to give some power to the island nations. The aim of the body is to try and maximise the, the returns and the value of the fishery back to the people. Um, and it's all about empowerment to us, so fisheries management and development is empowerment of Pacific Islanders so that we get a bigger and better and fair share of the value of this resource, which we believe is the right thing to do. The PNA nations originally experimented with having a set number of vessels allocated to flag states, but it didn't work. Catches continued to increase, and at the same time, Pacific Island nations remained locked out of any allocation. Instead, the PNA has moved to a vessel day scheme, where member nations agree on a limited number of fishing days for the year, which are then allocated by country and sold to the highest bidder. Dr Angarau says the management systems are flexible enough to allow for further restrictions to be introduced. As has been noted by the most recent meeting of the scientists, uh, the tuna catches in 2013 is estimated to be even higher, the highest on, on record so far. So what that's telling us is that we need to still um, reduce by, by, by applying tighter controls on, on the effort. And so we're going to go back and... Um, um, tighten up for this year what we're seeing is a, a tightening up of the vessel day scheme and if necessary what the vessel day scheme allows us to do is to to decrease the number of days so that we bring down uh, bring down effort and bring down catches to sustainable limits paradoxically while a cutback in fishing days seems likely to reduce income in fact transform Angarau says it's likely to drive up prices what I know is that if you do reduce the, the number of days, the value of the days increases because of scarcity. And scarcity enhances anything that's scarce um, always increases, um, its value always increases. Dr Angarau says the value of a day's fishing in the PNA area has already tripled since the scheme first started. And recently a record price of nearly $16,000 was reached. But it's a different story on the high seas and in international waters, where vessels are chasing the bigger fish, such as Big Eye, for the sashimi market. There, long-line boats with lines up to 100 kilometres long, with as many as 3,000 hooks, are operating with very little restriction. Dr Angarau says some control over the fishing carried out by longliners might be achieved if they became subject to measures similar to those enforced by PNA countries on purseiners. It's largely uncontrolled and these limits are a bit hard to monitor because there's no observers, 
and there's no reporting and there's no operational data that's being provided for by these boats that are fishing out in the high seas. And so the best thing to do is to close off those high seas to longline or actually um, yeah, close them off to, to longline boats or to have um, something like something like what the PNA has done for the two high sea pockets. And that would contribute um, quite significantly to reducing the or bring bring big eye tuna stocks back up to where we where we want it to be. It's well documented the Perth Sea nets using fads, floating devices that attract fish by offering shelter, catch big numbers of juvenile fish, especially big eye. The PNA has enforced four month long bans on the use of fads and has closed two high seas pockets to fishing as a condition of being granted in-zone licences. It also requires 100% observer coverage of all vessels using the Perth Seine nets. But while stocks begin to show an improvement during the fad bans, fishing companies have responded by increasing their use in the other months of the year, helping to wipe out the gains made during that time. The American philanthropic organisation, the Pew Charitable Trusts, is active in ocean conservation in the Pacific. Its manager of global tuna conservation, Adam Basque, says the organisation is working on a project with Pacific Island nations to start tracking fads. So what this does is it allows them to see how much fishing is actually happening because even if a fad is abandoned, it's still attracting fish, it's still potentially pulling fish out of their EEZ and putting them on the high seas where then they could be caught by anyone. Um, and it also lets us know the fate of the fads. You know, are, are they just drifting off and contributing to the, the garbage patches? Are, are they washing up on reefs uh, or beaches and, and causing uh, damage to, to other ecosystems? So, so it, is there an obligation if you use a fad, if a fishing boat uses a fad, that it has to take it away or can it just leave it there? Absolutely not. It, it can leave it there. It can abandon it. I think in the last couple of years... Fads were only used by fishermen in terms of setting their nets around them about 15,000 times. But we have evidence that between 30 and 50,000 were actually deployed into the area. So what happened to that other 20,000, 25,000? Nobody knows, and, and at this point, uh, the, the management and regulatory bodies don't really care. There, there's no regulation at all. But while some efforts are being made to improve stock levels by reducing the number of young big eye being caught in nets, Domestic companies that are working in the southern longline industry are only just managing to hang on in the face of overfishing. Salander is a New Zealand company which also has an operation in Fiji, but it's facing tough times as it struggles with poor catches. The company says the last good year was in 2010. Currently, it's only using about half of its fleet of 12 longliners, tying up and rotating those it sends out in order to keep them operational. The general manager, Radhika Kumar, says the company normally employs up to 400 people, but already 100 have been laid off. Basically, we employing majority Fijian, local, 98.5%. And uh, things, if things don't improve, I mean, everybody will suffer. Taking action to manage the amount of fishing, both in the waters of Pacific countries and within the region, gets her support. It's both overfishing and national uh, as well. And uh, I think uh, since tuna is a migrating species, I think it's getting all caught before it even enters our zone. She says previous talk about the Regional Tuna Commission having agreements in place for a total allowable catch for albacore has so far come to nothing.
Graham Southwick has pulled out of tuna fishing in Fiji now as it's not economically viable, especially in competition with boats that are subsidised, such as those from China and parts of the European Union. He explains as we walk alongside vessels unloading frozen fish, his company instead buys and then exports catches taken on the high seas by Taiwanese operations. Down, down the end there we have a typical Taiwanese boat that now fishes the area and they contracted to us, they joint venture and contract to us. These guys would go out for about six weeks at a time, up to two months. There was a time when they would be back after two or three weeks, but now it's more like two or three months. So they're doing it pretty hard as well. He says no matter how much the government cuts back the number of local boat licences, it wouldn't matter now, as the fishing in the high seas near Fiji is stripping stock before it gets inside the exclusive economic zone. Graham Southwick says the number of boats operating to the west of Fiji is leaving the area grossly overfished, and he sees only one option for the future. Nobody can stop what's going on in the high seas currently, and exactly that's going on, the transshipment, the illegal fishing, the the transfer of fish from one boat to another and no record whose fish it was or whether in fact the boat that transferred was, is a licensed boat or what, you know, it's just chaos going on out, out there. So until somebody does something radical and we've all suggested to the government what, what we think should be done and they, they go, I don't think so, you know. But there are things that can be done and for example, we've, we've said to Fiji government to talk to Solomon, talk to Vanuatu, Tonga Samoa and set some rules, say okay listen, these are the rules guys if you all you people want to come fish down here these are the rules, this is how many boats come fish down here, you do not have to cooperate with us, that's your choice, legally we can't force you but if you want to cooperate and then you can enter our ports and you can come in and get fuel and you can get repairs and maintenance done and da, 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 whatever it is if you don't want to cooperate and we can't force you to, then all, all your boats do not enter any port in the Pacific, cannot pick up fuel, cannot have any emergency repairs, cannot do anything. You want to play your game by your rules, you stay out there. Just keep screwing up the pressure until they say, OK, we'll, we'll play by your rules. The PNA's Transform Angarau backs that idea of pushing through change through a unified front. He says the stability of governments in the region is crucial in order to be able to work together. But even with the next meeting of the Tuna Commission coming up in Samoa in the next couple of months, Graham Southwick fears the reality will be talk, more talk and no action. But Greenpeace's Carly Thomas believes cooperation between the South Pacific nations could first emerge in the albacore fishery. What we're seeing with albacore is that um, kind of on a biological level, it's not in a critical state yet, but because it's a, um, not such an abundant fish overall, many of the local domestic fleets are, are running into real problems in terms of viability. So we've seen big layoffs of, um, from the longline operators in Fiji. Uh, we've seen the American Samoa fleet being put up for sale and tied up alongside. I think uh, the Tongan processing plant got closed down for some time. So we're seeing the real kind of knife edge of viability for these operations has been reached and I think that's what's going to um, push these countries into you know coming through with something strong amongst themselves that will start to put the kind of power back into their own hands in terms of managing the fishery. Greenpeace backs the concept put forward by Graham Southwick and believes more pressure for greater control and limits on the fishery must be brought to bear by Pacific nations themselves.
Although not perfect, the PNA group of fishing countries has led the way, and Carly Thomas says a combination of unity among Pacific nations and pressure from retailers and consumers is necessary to push through major change. The model should be that as coastal states develop their domestic fisheries, gradually foreign fishing is phased out, and that needs to happen, and, and that really will come from Pacific Island countries you know, prioritising their own fleets for access and starting to, ve- to de- develop their own fisheries. But at the same time, we need to have pressure from the buyers of that tuna. By and large, the longline fishery is far less under control than the Persane fishery in terms of there's a high level of illegal, unreported fishing going on. There's a lot of shark finning still in that fishery. There's a lot of um, cases of labour abuse happening at sea, even slavery at sea. So there's a lot of issues around that. And I think as the um, kind of buyers of tuna start to become more aware of that, see customer pressure against it, they're going to have to increase their standards. With the need to further restrict destructive fishing practices and reduce the size of catches, the PNA's Transform Angarau backs moving towards a system of limits on the number of fish caught. And I think in the long term, if you really want to get a better idea, we, we would have to move to catch limits because then that allows you to actually count every individual fish that's landed. A lot of fish to count, though. <laughs> You're talking about three to six hundred million pieces of fish. So that's that's the thing that uh, if we if we're going to move to catch limits, but then it creates jobs because huh? with catch limits you can require boats to land their their catches in ports in in the island countries, and then each individual fish has to be counted. And just imagine the number of jobs that that would create. Eh? And you're still creating jobs from the management of the fisheries. Those jobs through fisheries management mean employment without extra pressure on the resource itself. Such solutions get the approval of those trying to preserve the tuna stocks of the Pacific. Pew's Adam Basque remains upbeat about the prospect of the Pacific remaining a vibrant and commercially successful tuna fishery. The challenge is going to be having those countries really stand up for themselves and enforce the limits they're starting to agree to, that that once industry realises that the PNA are serious about these fishing limits. It'll not only empower the PNA to continue to ratchet down the, the amount of fishing, but it'll give some teeth to, to these international fishers, which, which so oftentimes you just totally, totally lack it. And we've been hearing that time and time again. You know, countries aren't even reporting their data. There, there's illegal activities potentially happening on, on the high seas. And the reason that this is happening is because at the commission level, at the, the flag state level, that there are few penalties for breaking the rules. The head of Tri-Marine, Phil Roberts, is equally optimistic, but his positive outlook is driven by what he thinks consumers will demand in the future. There's a growing uh, sense in the markets of the world for this tuna, whether in Europe or the USA or North America, um, that people don't want to eat food that's been harvested badly, unsustainably or exploiting people uh, you know this is a growing um, movement and uh, more and more retailers are asking for sustainably caught tuna and uh, of course NGOs are playing their part in that they're lobbying campaigning for more sustainable practices and this resonates with with consumers and therefore it resonates with retailers and brands and I think that's where the um, the pressure is going to come from because eventually I think and it's it's coming quite soon that unsustainably caught tuna is not going to sell for the same price as sustainably caught tuna and eventually 
unsustainably caught tuna will be unacceptable. That's the, the future, I think. And the head of the PNA Transform Angarau is also philosophic about what's ahead. This is really nature. We don't have any control at all over what happens out there at, at sea, the, the changes and how much fish there is. And it's only, we only know how much we catch. I'm Philip Atolli and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Gail Woods with technical production by Steve Burridge.